Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say, hey, we like to get started. I talk to you, and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Godley, you better start talking. Let's start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Midnight, conversing until the night. All we need is information. Now we got ourselves communication. Bradley J. J. Talking. WBZ. J. Talking Live. Midnight to 5 a.m. How does he do it? February 9 is the anniversary of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I believe. Candy Leonard, who was, was a guest here um, not too long ago, as she has a book on the Beatles, Beatleness, right? That's the name of the book, right? I didn't bring it with me. Am I right, Candy? Yes, that's the name. It's Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. Okay, so this was a big event. This uh, it's Ed Sullivan thing, right? Yeah, Just... it, it's the it's the biggest holiday in the American Beatle fan uh, calendar. So this is like Christmas that's when this... it all began. Yeah, is... yeah, it's when it all began. And can can you give some backstory on that? Some stuff that people don't know about that day, like how the booking came about, what kind of promises the Ed Sullivan show had to make? Well, I mean, they didn't, um, you know, Ed Sullivan had heard about them. He he actually, he was at Heathrow Airport when they were arriving back and he thought it must be the Queen or something. And he, you know, he learned about this band and he, he wanted to book them. I mean, he had kind of a sense about these things. And um, by today's standards, they were not paid very much. Um, but it was, a, you know, the Beatles had said, we don't want to go to America until we have a number one. Because in the past, British, you know, pop stars did not do well here. And so they were cautious about that. Um, and in fact, when this, right after this deal was uh, confirmed, they actually did, in fact, um, get there. And, you know, they're in France, depending in Paris at the time. And they heard that. Um, I Want to Hold Your Hand had hit number one in America, and they were thrilled, and they couldn't wait to come. And they were on the Ed Sullivan Show not only on February 9th, but on the 16th and the 23rd. So it was like three weeks in a row, and that was the deal that they made with Sullivan for three shows. Yeah, it was 10000 10, bucks, which is equivalent of 80000 bucks now, but the deal was they had, <laughs> they had to commit to three shows, which worked out pretty well for Ed Sullivan, made him look like a genius. Well, you know, he, he had been a, uh, you know, a TV reporter, had, a, I believe he started in radio, you know, but like many people whose careers intersected with the Beatles, it becomes their, you know, the, the thing they're known for almost, or the thing that I had an opportunity to interview Walter Cronkite um, years ago about the Beatles. And, you know, he, he just, 
you know, enjoyed talking about them so much. And he, you know, he wanted to establish the fact that he knew about them and had them on his, you know, was, was aware of them. And, and he was somehow, forget how it all played out, but there was some um, confusion about whether they were going to be on his show or some other show. But the point I'm making is that even somebody like him, who had this, like, illustrious career interviewing, you know, all the luminaries of the 20th century, practically, his encounter with the Beatles is the thing that he most enjoys talking about. I guess the Holy Grail of, of Beatledom would have to have been one of the 720 or 700 plus people actually in the studio for one of those. Yeah, they, um, it was, you know, the Ed Sullivan Theater where they now do, uh, Colbert does his show. Yeah, it was a, there was a very, they got a lot of requests and, uh, there are happy Rockefeller was in the audience when his Bernstein's daughter was in the audience. Um, yeah, very lucky people. But, you know, if you think about just seeing the Beatles in general, um, you know, world worldwide, I believe this number is, um, is fewer than two million people. About a million and a half people maybe have seen, seen them live ever, you know, as a band. So it's really an elite group of people. Yeah. Uh, there were bands before the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. None blew up like that. Uh, well, I, I'm always really interested in, in so why. Much. Why the Beatles? Why not the animals? What was it special about them? Well, well the animals hadn't come yet. They, they were part of the British invasion, which the Beatles initiated in, in the spring of 64. I don't know that Sullivan had bands on before. Oh, really? I, mean, I had, just assumed. He had Elvis on, um, you know, in 56. Oh. And, you know, he, I mean, because there really weren't any bands in the way that we think of the Beatles, you know, he, um, you know, he might have had like Bill Haley and the Comets or, you know, bands like that. But th those were like one of the things about them that were different. And they did this purposely. Like there was no leader. It wasn't like, you know, John Lennon and the Beatles. It wasn't, you know, so, so he, you know, there were some groups around that had like a front guy and some nondescript people in the back, you know, guys in the back. But they were this foursome, you know, like four you know, four corners of a China, you know, the square, and they were this kind of cohesive unit, you know, and and um, you know, people watching the Sullivan Show had never seen people that looked like this or sounded like this, and uh, you know, it's funny to think about now, but the hair was actually the thing that was most talked about the next day in the press. Their hair, you know, they look like girls, and and you know, and and especially you know what fans who I interviewed for being on this talks about how in their families, you know, that the fathers were horrified, especially by the hair. They didn't like it. You know, See, I got to remember that people hair. had crew cuts then. Like every, exactly. Everybody had crew cuts. And then these, these mop tops came right. over and freaked out parents. Right. It's funny because if you look at the footage of the Ed Sullivan show or any early pictures of the Beatles from, you know, when they first came to America, I mean, their hair is completely unremarkable by today's standards. I mean, you, you know, but at the time, it's really fascinating how um, what, what a commotion, you know, how everybody was just so focused on the hair. And, you know, their whole look was different. They had these very highly stylized, you know, European styled suits without collars and you know, sort of a different look. They had, they didn't, we had never seen people that looked and sounded like this before and one, fell instantly in love. One thing that must have helped the Ed Sullivan series of shows is that on November 18, NBC, on the Huntley Brinkley report, they had a huge 
four-minute-long segment on Beatlemania. That must have... Yeah. You know, there, there weren't that many channels, so a lot of people must have seen that, and that must have helped. Well, I think there was... I think they were covered on the news. In fact, on the day of Kennedy assassination, there was supposed to be a, um, a clip on them, I believe, on the CBS Evening News, which, of course, got scrapped. But, yeah, it was... You know, they, there was a little clip on the Jack Parr show also in January. So... There were these sort of, you know, little brief opportunities to, you know, if you happen to catch um, them on American television, there were these couple of opportunities. But what happened also was that Capitol realized that they had this, you know, they started to realize what they had, and then they put in some promotion. And there was actually quite a bit of hype. I mean, the, the fans that met them at the airport on the 7th, which is when they flew into the U.S., you know, those were all, you know, I don't know if they were paid, but they were encouraged to go. And, you know, so Capitol did hype it. And so that was certainly part of it. But there was a lot of uh, anticipation among, you know, young people because, you know, they, they had been hearing about them. And, and of course, I Want to Hold Your Hand had been on the charts, you know, as I was saying before, it was number one here. So they'd been hear, hearing that song probably since, you know, maybe around Christmas okay. time, and then we knew what they looked like from the records and whatnot. But to see them perform live was was a uh, really a game changer for a lot of people. Also, Candy, you wrote an article that is related to the book, and I think help is a good con encapsulated way to help people understand where the book may be coming from. And that is seven ways the Beatles changed boomer childhood overnight. You take a sort of sociological look at the Beatles in the country. And right. Well, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Um, well, this performance that happened 50 years ago, 55 years ago yesterday, um, you know, as the fans that I've interviewed and, you know, people that I've met over my, the course of my life, which is, you know, these kinds of conversations about people remembering that and what a big deal it was. That's part of what made me want to write the book. And people describe it as, you know, like when you, in The Wizard of Oz, you know, the scene where she... It's all in black and white, and she opens the door after the tornado and the house lands in Oz, right? And she opens the door, and suddenly everything's in color. That is, you know, kind of the way fans describe it. But, um, yeah, so my book kind of takes it through not only the, the early, you know, 64, but through the entire timeline until they broke up in 1970 and how fans responded all along that um, timeline throughout the 60s. But getting back to the... Um, the Sullivan broadcast itself, and, and it was literally overnight that suddenly, uh, you know, things changed. So, yeah, so I wrote this piece sort of highlighting these seven things. And, and one of so, them is the Beatles made music a necessity. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, most kids probably had some kind of music in their lives, either music their parents listened to, or maybe they had Disney records or Alvin and the Chipmunks, you know, this kind of, you know, remember those little plastic, yellow plastic records. But suddenly there were the Beatles. And so the way, you know, the excitement and enthusiasm that, you know, that people reacted with. And so this music became something special. It was your music. It was no longer your parents' music or baby music. It was cool music. It was the same music that teenagers were listening to. You know, I mean, the thing that you need to remember, like, in talking about the Beatles, and I always emphasize this, is that people think, oh, it was just teenage girls, you know, screaming teenage girls. But in fact, the largest number of first-generation Beatles fans were actually, like, you know, younger than 10 years old. So it was really, there were children who, who like, the, just the whole nature of their childhood was changed. And one of these things was that suddenly you have little kids 
with transistor radios, which were inexpensive and readily available at that time, you know, with a little earplug in one ear, you know. So they, they, music became important to, to kids in a way that it never had been before. And you and, say and, that they put down their Lincoln Logs, their Jacks, their pickup sticks, and their Chatty Cathy and started listening to music instead. I didn't, I didn't realize that. That's pretty huge. It was huge. I mean, suddenly, you know, the things that you used to do, I mean, this may have been more true for boys because the Beatles were guys, you know, and the big thing, of course, were guys. Like, they wanted to be cool like that and, and play music. But in general, you you know, like, you know, all these toys and games and things that people used to that kids were, um, you know, had been part of their lives, suddenly seemed babyish. It's, it wasn't cool anymore. And you wanted to listen to music and dance with your friends and talk to your friends about the Beatles and buy magazines and Beatles trading cards and all the other merch that appeared literally like overnight. And, it, you know, one of the things I set out to do in the book was really try to capture this frenzy that happened, um, you know, beginning in with that broadcast that we're celebrating and really went on for seven years um, throughout the 60s. But that's really, that's where it all started. So, yes, so, so music became a focus and the Beatles were, we were so intrigued by them that you just wanted to not only listen to the music, but talk about them with friends. And, and that was the most, they became a focal point in kids' lives in a way that nothing ever had been before. Point number four in your Huffington Post article, which is I like, is uh, children became aware of their parents and wanted to look cool. Now, teenagers had long been aware of being cool. They would get jalopies and slick their hair back and have special hairstyles and roll their cigarettes in their T-shirt. But <laughs> you say that after the Beatles, or at the time of the Beatles, all of a sudden, young, young kids, like eight years old, instead of worrying about how tight the pants should be. Exactly, because you you wanted to be like the Beatles, because there was nothing cooler. One fan described, in fact, I ended up naming this chapter in the book, The Embodiment of Cool. That's what they were. And so, you know, the music, the look, the style, it's like everybody... Everybody was talking about them. Your friends were talking about them. People at school, the people on TV, grown-ups. And, like, everybody was talking about them. So so to be part of this thing as, as a young fan made you feel very powerful. You know, it was, it was you know, and part of that is you, you want to communicate that you're part of this thing, right? So looking cool, of course, boys wanted to grow their hair, and, and that um, caused a lot of problems in, in families. You know, just I mean, in the book, these anecdotes where these boys particularly had fights with parents, particularly fathers, um, and ultimately getting dragged to the barbershop. And they remember to this day the indignity of, of doing that, you know, by having to, you know, because the hair became a very important symbol. Had to uh, but, sever your beetleness. Is there a particular brand of beetle boot? Like, a, Is there a, a maker and a model? Is the official brand and model? Yes, and I should know this. I don't. They're actually called Cuban heels. Um, if you Google Cuban heels, they'll okay. probably come up Beatles. I mean, they're available because a lot of the um, tribute bands, um, you know, are very um, precise about their things like this, and so they buy. So they're available. In your opinion, what's the best Beatles tribute band? Uh, around here, I would have to say, without a doubt, Studio Two. Tell me about them. Well, um, they're young guys. They're probably, I want to say, 
20, I don't think any of them are maybe 25 yet. Um, they're young and they are just passionate about the Beatles. They're excellent musicians. I think uh, two of them, I think, are Berkeley graduates and they, they're mute. They have this reverence for the Beatles that comes through and they focus on the early years, like when, you know, almost, you know, like on the cusp of their fame here, you know, like late 63 type stuff. Do they and, you have know, a... like a lot of, do they have a fanatic uh, attention to detail as far as gear and stuff like that yes, goes? Yes, the gear is absolutely authentic. Uh, yes, the microphones, the amplifiers, the guitar. Yes, they're they're. I, I you know people throw the word obsessed about a lot, so I don't want to say they're obsessed, but because that also has a negative connotation, which I do not at all mean. But no, they, they it's, it's you know as a first generation fan, like, I I think well their sound is incredible. Like they they, they have an energy about them that, and that's a big part of the Beatles. This energy, this fresh energy, and and Studio Two really captures that. They're called Studio uh, in a Two. Really nice Why are they called Studio Two? They're called Studio Two because in Abbey Road Studios, well, actually, technically EMI Studios on Abbey Road in London, um, the, the room that the Beatles most often recorded in was Studio Two. Because there, you know, there's I guess Studio One and Studio Two, and so they recorded and actually visited. I was in that room in 1999. Hallowed ground, but yeah, so that's Studio Two. Okay, so that's where they got their name from. We don't have much time. The Beatles displaced traditional role models. Can you do male role models? Can you talk 60 seconds on that? Sure. I mean, you know, think about boys in the early 60s. You know, astronaut soldiers, GI Joe. You know, but suddenly those things were not so interesting anymore, and and the attention turned to these four um, musicians who, at the time, were, were kind of androgynous, although we didn't use that word. You know, there was nothing macho about them. They were they were just fun and full of energy and opening our ears to this amazing music. And, uh, you know, it was, they didn't look like most of the men that we saw on television. Before the Beatles, kids didn't consume much stuff. But when the Beatles came around, kids were dying to buy stuff, buy Beatles stuff. Yeah, well, the merchandise, as I mentioned before, became a really big part of this. And so children became consumers. So if you had allowance or you had money from chores, it's like, okay, well, if I do I save it? Do I buy a record? Do I buy a magazine? You know, so, so suddenly you were making these um, consumption decisions as a 10-year-old around these Beatles object, you know, these deal things. And, you know, people remember, oh, the first time I was allowed to walk to the store by myself was to buy a Beatles record or a Beatles magazine. You know, people often say, oh, it's a soundtrack to my life. But I think it's actually more than that, because the, the Beatles were actually the substance of the of what was happening. It wasn't just a soundtrack. It was like they were, you know, in the frame, in the front, you know, sort of because it was all about buying Beatles things. What's, what was your first Beatles single? Mine? That you bought. I don't remember. It was probably I want to hold your hand, but I can't. I can't say for sure. You know, I was. I had an older sibling, so I didn't always have to buy the uh, records right away. And I know this is cliche, but I'm still interested. Which? What do you say? It's the Beatle album, and why? My favorite one. Is well, that what you asked me? Yeah, your Desert Island, the most complete. Oh, Desert Island. You know, just um, the most complete example yeah, of what the yeah. Beatles are. Oh, that's so difficult because, as you know, they evolved, you know, they, you know, what they were in 64 is nothing like they even were a year later. Yeah. Um, I guess if I had to pick one that can only listen to one Beatle record for the rest of my life, I suppose it might be 
uh, help the uh, help soundtrack, the the Parlophone help soundtrack, or possibly the American Rubber Soul. One what, of those. What's two. the difference between the American and the you know the import? Well, what Capitol Records did very quickly after February 9th, 1964, they realized that there was this like insatiable American market, North American market. So they would create all these other albums that were, you know, they would take like tracks off other things that were works in progress or combined things. So there was, so the American albums are considered uh, sort of not legit because that's not what the Beatles intended, or you know, in terms of you know, this is in the days where albums were, you know, the senses that they kind of matter or that they they reveal the artistic progression. So what Capital did, you know, the complaint is that not only wasn't craft commercialism, but that it it dealt, you know, it tampered with the integrity of of their product. So the, so people consider the um, part of you know the UK. Uh, Parlophone records as sort of the official, so they're they're, they're different. Okay. Um, up until Sgt. Pepper, then the Beatles said, "Don't, we're not doing that. You can't do that anymore." So they stopped doing it. But you see a big difference with Rubber Soul and Revolver, and also there's a record that came out in between called Yesterday and Today, which American fans love, but many people don't consider a real album. We've been speaking with Candy Leonard, who is the author of Beatleness: How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. Great job! I really appreciate you staying up late for us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ Boston's News Radio. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.